to the truth in this art. I am your host, Rob Lee, and I am thrilled to be in conversation with my next guest, an award-winning journalist, founder of Latino Rebels, and president for Futuro Media. The Futuro Media Group creates multimedia content for and about the new American mainstream in the service of empowering people to navigate the complexities of an increasingly diverse and connected world. Please welcome Julio Ricardo Varela. Welcome to the podcast. Oh hey, what's up? In awe? No, come on! I'm I'm down. I'm I'm. It was an honor that you reached out and we got to talk a little bit, and and here we are. And I'm super jazzed up to be like here. Yeah, um, it's 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 great to be able to connect, and you know, we we had a really cool conversation. So having this sort of be the, you know, the the back end of it, the sort of continuation of what yeah. we're doing here and yeah. you're one of the, the the 10 people in in the in this country that has one of my t-shirts i think someone in like europe has one of my shirts. i wear i i want to put it on record i am the next time i wear the t-shirt i am going to take a picture and tag you i love the t-shirt <laughs> i i i've told you this before previously but now i now you have me recorded i'm gonna go on record it has that cool fat albert vibe when when you know growing up to sat because for, for me like i grew up in the 70s like the late 70s early 80s i'd love like it just had that vibe i was like oh my god this feels like a cool fat albert cartoon when you can talk about Cos when it was cool to talk about cosby so i don't want to like I, I definitely want to add that disclaimer but but i love i love your i love your t-shirt okay. and like and what and the thing is up here yeah. people are like what is this i'm like oh it's a podcast <laughs> out of baltimore you know and so it has that edge to it you know what yeah. i'm saying well, people are like, oh, you're so hip. So um, thank you. Thank you for making me cool. Finger in the pulse. <laughs> so 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 as we we kind of start off um, here before we get to like the, the main topic, I, I want to like, you know, go into sort of the introduction, the origin story. Uh, could you introduce yourself to the audience and give us sure. a little, your background? Where'd you grow up? And yeah, you know, yeah. maybe a, sto a news story that comes to mind, you know, oh, OK. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, my name is Julio Ricardo Varela. I'm originally from Puerto Rico. Uh, I was born in Atorrey, which is part of the metropolitan area of San Juan. Um, my dad is Puerto Rican. My mom is Bronx Italian. Uh, they met in the late 60s. And I grew up in Puerto Rico until my parents split when I was like, um, kind of, you know, first or second grade and moved to the Bronx. But I, um, I always went back and forth. You know, for me, Puerto Rico has always been what defines me in a lot of ways. And I've had that journey, right? Because some, you know, you know, as you grow up in life, you you accept your identity, you reject it, you try to change it, you try to adapt it, whatever. Like I've had a love hate relationship with my identity since you know I was a kid. But I'm at peace, right? I, I'm. I, I had my formative years in the Bronx in the late 70s, early 80s, which let's just be real. Lucky me. <laughs> Some things that went down. <laughs> yeah. Lucky. You, you know, I I um I think about that now because not to say like the 50th anniversary of hip hop, but it was cool yeah. growing up back then. And I went to um I went to parochial school, but then went to a Jesuit prep school, Fordham Prep, which is on the Fordham University campus. Mm -hmm. And it was still a place where kids from the Bronx and kids from Westchester. So if people don't understand you, like Westchester's, Westchester's a suburb right outside of the, the Bronx, like met 
and it was still kind of 60 40 bronx yeah. and i just never forget it because it was all these like you know dominicans puerto ricans like you know black kids italian kids irish kids it was still like there was still like a working class feel to it and we were kind of like yeah but we're going to a, like a prep we had to wear like a suit and tie like that was bad man and i had to walk through my neighborhood in a suit and tie at 14. I, but you know it wasn't a good you know i was kind of that's why i you know sometimes a, a suit kind of sends some you know for me i, I get triggered but Anyway, but I remember, like, you want to hear a new story. I don't think I've ever told this story, but I'm going to tell you now. It's I remember when hip hop started coming out, right? And I think my first memories, I obviously I was probably like 10, 11. And obviously Sugar Hill Gang was the first where you're like, oh, my God, like the lettering of Sugar. You're like, what is this? And even though at the time I didn't know that they weren't even from New York, like they kind of came from New Jersey. <laughs> like like but that's that you know that was that was the song yeah. that was the song back at the turn you know around the you know around 80 1980 and but what was interesting is going into that high school and hanging out with all my bronx friends who were coming literally coming from all over the borough right so i was kind of like center like central bronx by forum road but you know i had friends from all over the bronx south bronx east bronx west bronx and I'll never forget it because hip hop was so like, that was it. Yeah. Like that, you know, you're 13, 14, 15 years old. You wanted to be a B boy. You wanted to break dance. You wanted to beatbox, you know, Dougie fresh. I just, that was, you know, Lottie Dottie, Roxanne, Roxanne, just like really old school hip hop that it still holds. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like you listen to it now and you're like, damn, that shit is good. It's tight. Yeah. Right. And I'll never forget a couple of guys. We would beatbox nice. before school started in the cafeteria. Right. And it was this sort of weird, I'd say it was a weird feeling, but it was kind of like here are these guys in like suits and ties, <laughs> like beatboxing. Right. And like rhyming. And you don't realize how that shapes you mm -hmm. until you then take the journey. And when I finally got to, then I went to, I went to Harvard undergrad and I don't, you know, I got in in 86 and, uh, you know, and I was like, I got to go, you know, how we, I had, we had no money, whatever. <laughs> and, but I'm really grateful that I grew up in the golden age of, of sort of like when hip hop became political, when it became real, like, you know, De La Soul just came out with their finally, right. Digitally. Right. I was able to finally share it with my son to be like, hey, in 1989, I listened to Three Feet High and Rising every day. I did my my I worked. I, I think I wrote my thesis with it. I said, I don't know if you like like he does appreciate my taste. Like, that's the one thing about hip hop. Like, I do think that modern hip hop or like people that like hip hop appreciate the past, which I think is different music. Like, I think sometimes people look down at the past, but I think they realize the roots Mm -hmm. And I said, I don't know if you're going to like it, but this is what I used to listen to in 89. And he liked Public Enemy. So I was like, so he gave it a shot and he's like, I like it. And then, and he realized like, this was like that time. And I keep coming back. Like now I'm 50, you know, I'm a 50 something guy. Um, And I listen to a lot of that mm -hmm. and it holds, 
but I also appreciate new artists. Like my son does introduce me to new things. So, you know, I do have kids and, you know, or college kids or a 20 something kid who like keep me cool. <laughs> but, um, but I love the fact that my son would say, you know, I love Chuck D. I love Nas. You know, I like, like he likes, he likes that. Right. And, and that's part of who like he, and I kind of like to think that I gave him a little bit of that <laughs> because I would just not play, you know, I play like public and public enemy radio on Pandora when they were seven. It's like, we're not listening to the wiggles. We're not listening to kids music. <laughs> like we're listening to PE. Yeah. And so like, I have a video of my kids, like, I think like lip syncing, don't believe the hype, which when I'm down, you know, when I'm a little bit down and like, it's on my Facebook and they're like seven and five and they're hilarious. That's like great. the way, you know, so anyway, so that's a story I've not told anyone on any podcast. Um, and it's cool because I, you know, you reconnect with your friends and your high school buddies and we talk about that, that joy, right? That was a joyful moment and you forget how music mm. and creativity really help you. And even in the, my toughest times, whether I'm, when I dealt with like challenges professionally or with my mental health or whatever, music for me calm like i need to have music on yeah. like you know what i'm saying like like i don't have music on now because i'm talking to you <laughs> but the moment i'm done talking to you i'm gonna go back do work turn on my speaker have a playlist and just it's oh i, I have it all the time and and i think it's because i've always loved it yeah. right growing up as a kid so i'm so there that's a that's a story i've not shared with anyone on any podcast, you have you have your exclusive. Well, well thank you. I, I'm trying to be a journalist, so getting an exclusive <laughs> is, is is great. Um, and definitely, um, music is is huge for me as well. Uh, you know, if I put on something, I like to because there's always blind spots. I, I was yeah. speaking with someone earlier about um, who who also mentioned you know hip hop's birthday as well as its sort of anniversary. It's really funny, uh, and she spent a fair amount of time in New York in the sort of fashion scene. And, you know, we were just talking about just like sharing music and music being a time capsule. But I was also mentioning sort of these like pop culture and creative like black holes that I have. Yeah. And what I like to do, whether it's through music, whether it's through film, is I like to dive into something I know I've missed. missed. Oh, I, I, yeah. yeah. I, when my kids were, you know, from the time, you know, so my kids are young 20 somethings. Yeah. Right. My, my son just turned 20. My daughter's 22. From like 2000 and 2006, I had no concept of popular culture because I, because I was, I, you know, I had two kids, my wife and I, we had two kids and they were under five and you literally were doing Dora the Explorer and things like that. So like, I'm actually like, I was like, oh, that movie came out in 2004. Oh, let me catch it. I totally missed that. I, that was a period I totally missed. Yeah. And, and so I get it. I totally get it, but it's fun because I missed, you know, I miss Jay-Z when Jay-Z was Jay. I, I didn't know about that. I he came back. I was like, I was like, oh, hard knock. Okay. Oh, I see why he's good. But that's like, but that's one of the things where like I, I would go back in, especially because like like my, my partner, she she just she just hit 50, what have you. And she'll mention like, can't remember when this happened. I'm like, no, no, don't. 
because but then there's other things that are like sort of out of general interest like there's a 12 year age gap I'm 38 so yeah she'll mention like yeah remember when this happened when we were in school I was like <laughs> I, was I wasn't like, in school <laughs> but every now and again it's something because I'll have like this interest and I'll go really into it like right now this is ridiculous all right go tell me what what are you into now I'm definitely diving back into Miami Vice it's oh so my ridiculous. god okay can i can i tell you my okay this okay you're gonna oh man i love the way you i love the fact that you started it and said like tell me something that okay there's another story i'm gonna tell you that i haven't shared <laughs> but you're gonna love it so i remember when miami vice came out i think it was at 82 83 so i was probably like 14 15 maybe 16 i mean around that time right yeah. and and you know you at the time it was like oh like this is and then and you're watching it and you're like what's going on and then all of a sudden like the phil collins i and the phil collins like i can feel it coming in the air you know that yeah. song at the end you're like oh my god you're sucked in miami vice was so big yeah. in in the space in high school you're gonna laugh when i was like student council president we had a miami vice night nice. at school oh yeah like 1985 i think it was 1985 it was a dance nice. and I don't know if anyone has the picture, but we all wore like white jackets with aqua, <laughs> like with like the Docksiders. We thought we were the shit. Yeah. And we played the entire, like throughout the night, the DJ would play the Miami Vice soundtrack. <laughs> so fire. And like we would, you know, but then you think about it now. Yeah. Like when you, I started watching some of it, I was like, damn, like. Oh yeah, yeah, I get it. Look at all the Cuban guys with the accents and the drug dealing and all that stuff. And you're like, okay, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it's a little bit. You, you, but but then you have to look at it in the context, right? And then, but but then I was like thinking to myself, Crockett and I was like Don Johnson and and then Crockett, you know, Tubbs and Crockett. I'm like, they were like too good looking to be yeah, cops. Yeah. And there's a little cheesiness to it that I love. It, and it's, it's funny because I make fun of, because I'm a black guy, I make fun of yeah. Roberto Tubbs so much. So I'm like, what what are you, bro? What, I know. What? He he was like, he was like, what were you? Were you like Haitian? Are you Dominican? Puerto Rican? Like, were you, he was, you know what it was? He was a safe black man in 80. You know what it's like? That's what it was. Like, he, he was just. Oh, we call him safe beiges. Yeah, like, he was like, oh, look how good looking he is. Like, he's pat, like, yeah. white people will like him. Right. Which I think is really, you know, you think about that shit now and it's it, that's that's what it was. Right. You do, wouldn't see those faces. Um, But, you know, for me, as as a Puerto Rican dude, yeah. I was constantly looking for representation back then. <laughs> right. And, and I'm like, going, oh, I'm, I'm with the drug dealers. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, um, but at the same time, that's why, like, to go back to Fat Albert. Yeah. That's why I love Fat Albert back at the time, because it was a bunch of black kids just being kids and i that was my world in the bronx because it was kind of a, a my neighborhood was strange like I, and i say this strangely integrated mm. and i don't say that as like i i don't want people to misinterpret what i say here it, it was rare yeah. that there were it was a very middle class neighborhood and it wasn't as segregated as other parts of the Bronx. I agree. And, yeah. you, and when you go to like other parts of the Bronx, especially like, you know, 
there's like parts of the Bronx. I'm, I'm sure in Baltimore, it's the same way. It's like, it's just like all white people. Right. And then you go to other parts of the Bronx, it's all Puerto Ricans or all black people. Right. And you don't realize that growing up, but then you start thinking about it. Right. And you start being aware of it and you know how the Northeast, the quote unquote liberal Northeast mm-hmm. is, you know, you know, like Dr. King said, or Mal, you know, it's like, it's just a different type of vibe. Right. And so it was, for me, it was it was like this was what this was normal, yeah. like an integrated neighborhood was normal, yeah. right? And 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 that to me was something that, like, when you think back, like I'm, you know, it's so funny when you start talking about where you come from, you know. And I don't have a lot of time, you know. I don't. I never talk about like growing up in the Bronx as much as I should, right? Yeah. But we we would it was sports. It was, you know, football in the park, you know, basketball. Like yeah. I was, I was a quiet 13 year old kid. I love basketball. The Knicks for me, I, that was the first team I fell in love with in New York. And I still, it's the only team in New York that I still love, even though I'm based in Boston now, but that's another story. <laughs> but I would just show up yeah. in the courts as a quiet kid, very shy. And then I would play, you know, I'd just wait and be yeah. like, then you got the pickup and and then you'd play and be like, I was decent. Yeah. I was decent. And and that's how you earned the respect, right? You played the sport. And then it was like, it broke the ice. Sport, to me, sports broke the ice. Mm-hmm. I was big into baseball. And, and that's what you had in common. So, like, I kind of rolled with this very, you know, for me, it's hard to say it this way because, like, I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, I grew up in it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, I grew up like racial equality no it's bullshit it was just like what it was right yeah there were problems but at the same time i'm i'm just saying those there were plenty of neighborhoods in new york city that were like that mm-hmm. that you don't you don't appreciate it in the moment mm-hmm. that yeah. that it was it was just a lot of families like wanting the best for their kids and i don't think you see you know and um and so to me, that was just life, right? <laughs> it was sports. It was being a boy. It was like going out and not coming home until it was dark. And there was a time, right? And 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 the thing is, it's also like, it was still the city. <laughs> it wasn't bucolic. I mean, you know, <laughs> my mom would be like, you know, if you go on the subway, like you got to be aware. I mean, I was aware of growing up in the city, yeah. right? And I, and I still, while I'm in New York City now, I'm still aware. Like, it's just what it is, but I'll, it's just I'll- interesting. I'll say, and I, I want to have one more uh, point before I get to like the, the main thing. Um, so, one, well, two more points. One, uh, you mentioned Subway. I just watched Scream Six. Screw that movie. As a person who had a who had a mild, and it wasn't a real one, but it was it was in that vein. I was like, nah, I'm gonna get out this train. I don't like it. You yeah, know, I, I'm yeah. I was in New York. I was like. You, you, we're we're going where you know you don't have reception. It's like hey you're go, you're going to um, <laughs> Bed Stuy. It's like oh my bad I'm in Bushwick. I was like look I don't understand Brooklyn as it is. Yeah. So um, and then now just the complication of some fool potentially like I have a screen mask on. It's like come on guys let's not do that. I, I know it's you know and I I love the New York City subway. Yeah. I love it. I love everything about it. I love I love this congregation of people. I everyone has a story yes we we would the thing is where i lived in the bronx we were off the express into manhattan Mm -hmm. and it was really easy to get down to midtown 
after school, yeah, I mean, 20 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're in Manhattan and, you know, you're 16, 17 years old and you're like, whoa, like this is a different world. Yeah. So I just loved it. Yeah. I loved the people. I, I, you know, and, and, uh, I still hear my mother's voice every time, like, be careful. I still do like, you know, but it's what it is. It's what life's about. It's like, I, there's a joy. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I, I just feel grateful. Like all these experiences that get you to where you are. Right. And uh, yeah, it's cool stuff. And, and this is the last thing I want to throw in there. I think that you'll yeah. find funny because um, it's, it's music related, but also it's culturally related. Okay. Uh, so again, diving into stuff that is like before my time and really getting into it. So I used to work um, for Spanish speaking call center in New York. Okay. I do not speak Spanish. Um, How I did you do that? To, like I, I speak we, it terribly. <laughs> oh my God. Did That's okay. So we, all we, right. We did this end of year party in Manhattan Okay, and all they played was freestyle. And I knew all of this stuff. And they're like, of course, I got to feel, I got to understand this. How do you know all of this, but you don't speak Spanish and you're on rhythm? <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you know, this is the thing about being Puerto Rican, right? It's a different experience. Like one of the things that I noticed rather quickly, yeah. having been a kid in Puerto Rico, different experience. And then when I moved to the Bronx and seeing sort of the New Yorican experience, I instantly saw, you know, and, you're, and there's a difference, right? Yeah. And it was super interesting for me because in the New Yorkian space, I came from Puerto Rico, right? So I, I, it took for a while, like, for me to understand the New Yorkian experience, especially in high school, I was seen as a kid from Puerto Rico. Yeah. And then when I was in Puerto Rico, I was seen as a kid from New York, mm-hmm. right? And... I know it sounds, you know, a lot of people talk about navigating between two worlds. It just becomes who you are, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I say sometimes as I grew up, I would I would reject my identity. I would say, no, I don't want it. This is too much. This is too, you know, I, I, I don't want to live in two worlds. I want to just be in this world. And, you know, sometimes you make it up, right? So you can just, you know what I mean? It's like, and, and, and the reality is whiteness is a drug, in a lot of ways. Right. And so sometimes you're taught that. And, you know, I can, I can navigate through the white space because, you know, people look at me and like, Oh, you're, you look white. And I'm like, I, yeah, I, I don't identify as like Anglo and white, you know, for me, white is has so many connotations. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, but at the same time, the one thing that, I realized, and I kind of was intentional in school and college that I just dove in and just said, this is my identity. I want to know more about it. And that's where I got into like Latin American literature and history and really understanding that my experience as a Puerto Rican man actually had more in common with someone from like Mexico or my history in, in Latin America. And I kind of gravitated to that yeah. and it shaped me. Yeah. Right. And, and it's what kept me bilingual. It's what kept me bicultural. And, and you know, and you're in an elite white space, you know, Harvard is mm-hmm. once you're there, you got to figure it out. Like, that's the other thing. It's like, you got no people are like you're in figure it out. You're smart. 
Yeah. And it was tough, man. It was tough because you could see already how white liberals mm -hmm. would look at different communities mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know the patronizing part of it. it it was just this weirder type feel where you're like whoa would that guy just insult me without like did he you know oh you speak english so well like things like that and you're like okay I, or I, when i wrote my thesis about puerto rico yeah. i i got a no distinction from a professor because they said why are you writing about puerto rican literature and i'm like I'm fucking Puerto Rican. Like, is, is that, it, but you know, when you're seven, when you're 19, 20 years old, and it's a different time yeah. where, you know, I think you, you get put in this imposter place. You feel like, oh, I don't deserve to be here. And now this person doesn't think I have a brain. And it's tough, right? And you just got to fight through it and not forget where you come from. I, I encountered that in, in doing this this sort of series and really yeah um oh yeah can you take some of the blackness out of it yeah, uh, yeah. or yeah. you know it's like yeah. i'm a six foot four 300 pound <laughs> black man what do you want from me and <laughs> you can't squeeze but then there's the other side of it right yeah yeah i have folks who I have kind of the same or similar experience. Like I'm from the place. I'm from Baltimore. I lived in these yeah. different spots. Yeah. I don't know if you're from here, bro. It's like, which which yeah. one is it? And I'm just like, I just want to be a dude that does my thing. I want to be well, that's dude. yeah, that's I think you reach a certain point in life where you're you navigate through all whatever it is. Yeah. You know, you navigate the lovers and the haters and there's a, you know, some days you react better than other days. And then you reach a certain point in life where you literally do not give a flying fuck. It's, it's age. It's age. I've learned. And I think it's age. <laughs> and I just at this point where maybe it's age and experience mm -hmm. and you need to recognize the privilege that you have and understand that you're in a position where whatever you can give it to this world will have some little level of impact. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not here to change the world, but I'm here to like, at least make, make it a better place for, for where I am at. Right. Mm -hmm. The fact that I tell my wife a lot, it's like, our kids are cool kids. Like we've created great human beings, Yeah, you know, then I'm, to me, that's so satisfying. Right. Or I've been able to, you know, in the space where I'm at, if little media give opportunities for journalists to not have to go down different routes mm -hmm. to kind of settle because they have to have a job and be like, no, work on the things that you love to sort of, those are the things it's like, for me, it's always been about challenging stereotypes mm -hmm. because I think it was pretty quick for me to understand, you know, in the West side story syndrome of what everyone thinks of Puerto Ricans, that that was our story. Right. Right. And that, that, that was going to be it, that we were these foreign gang members who were taking over, you know, were taking over the Irish neighborhoods in the 50s and we were a threat. Yikes. And I've never seen it, by the way. So now it's like, yeah, but, oh. but, that, but, but that's the one story that becomes part of the American lexicon. Yeah. Right. So then you spend your entire life as a Puerto Rican man, like fighting against that. Mm -hmm. And when you do it at 18, 
authority kind of comes at you, right? Mm-hmm. When you do it at 53 and you're in a position of privilege and power, mm-hmm. it's a different conversation, right? right? And the fact that, you know, now I'm in a media organization whose founder, who I love, Mariana Hosa, first Latina correspondent at NPR, has been kicking ass for years. She wins a Pulitzer Prize, yeah. and I'm part of that organization. Like, sometimes you have to take some of the power, you know, you, you have to kind of grab some of the things that define success in America or wherever in this world and say, like, oh, we got that. We yeah. we we want it, too. Yeah. That changes the conversation because no longer because now we're not this sort of little ethnic checklist item. Like now we're we're on the same level as you and you can't ignore us. Right. And that there's a little bit of mm-hmm. bite to that. Mm-hmm. And. I've always been told, and Maria's always been told, you know, you're an activist, you're biased, you're too close to your community. I'm like, they don't say that about white journalists. You're too close to your community? Like, isn't that what storytellers are supposed to be doing? Anyway, I, I get on the soapbox. Bring me bring me back down. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're there. And I, and I think yeah. all of it is like giving us sort of the, the context that leads into um, and actually two of my questions are already answered later in here. But it leads into sort of this this question I have about like, what does it mean to be a journalist? Like yeah. what separates like good journalism from from shoddy journalism? And, and I'll, I'll add this sort of caveat here yeah. where, you know, I I really look at it from sort of this podcast lens. You know, where mm-hmm. remember that bubble burst? Everyone was like, oh, I'm going to get this uh, Spotify money. And then you're trying to copy a formula. Hey, let's just do this barbershop thing. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's have all the same mics. And there's nothing of the person that is the storyteller or the host or whatever that's in it. And it just feels like shoddy. No, it, it, this is my point. And, and like people catch up to this. OK, this is where I I've, and we've had this, you know, when we got to know each other. Yeah. You know, one of the things, like, why am I here? Right. Mm-hmm. I started as a, a, I love sports writing. I love, li- like, I loved reading great sports writing. And I grew up with the New York Daily News. And then I moved to the, to Boston and Boston Globe sports page is, is required reading. I was obsessed. And, you know, even though I wasn't a Celtics fan, like, I was there. I saw Larry play Dominique and, I saw this greatness. Yeah. And so I became a sports editor at the at the Harvard Crimson and I got to cover hockey, Harvard hockey. And they won the national championship in 1989. And I loved the sport. Yeah. Because and here I am, Puerto Rican kid, never, never skated, never played hockey, but I just loved it, right? And I got a, a internship at the Boston Globe and I got like 60 bylines in 1989 and i remember i covered soccer yeah uh there was a soccer league back then and the boston team i forget the name of the league but they were in the championship down in fort lauderdale so they sent me down and i do remember interviewing a lot of soccer players in spanish and they were like whoa what year is this <laughs> right <laughs> who are you you're talking to me in spanish and they would open up to me yeah, yeah, yeah. because i was able to communicate with them so I tried to go back to the globe after I graduated and, and say like, Hey, you need people like me. They're like, why? Because there might be like bilingual stars on the Red Sox. Not like all. Latinos. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about, kid? You know, 1990s, like 
Right. No, right. And obviously David right. Ortiz, Pedro Martinez, many like everything, everything that I predicted that Boston was going to become more Latino, more Dominican, more Puerto Rican was happening. And so I kind of went down a different route in educational publishing because I didn't want to go cover sports in Iowa. And I got into bilingual textbooks for kids and worked on literature so they could see themselves for, you know, by bilingual kids, Spanish speaking kids in the United States yeah. back in the nineties and bilingual education. And we created literature and we created literature for these kids. And it was really important. And then the whole politics of bilingual education started really hitting home sort of in the late nineties, early aughts. I was, you know, there was so much things happening in California. There was an English only bill and I was in this job and I'd, and I'd say, you know, demographics are destiny. Like the country is going to be more Latino. It's going to be more bilingual. It's going to be more Spanish speaking. There's going to be more English language learners. And I remember, you know, being sort of this editor in the late, in my late twenties, early thirties, where people would be like, you're, you know, again, you're an activist, you're biased, you're looking through it through this lens, you know, it's English only America, 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 and everything that was predicted mm -hmm. happened. I got lucky and you talk about privilege because I had a Harvard EDU email that I got an early invite to Facebook in 2004. So I was one of these people who like realized social and digital media mm -hmm. could be a journalism tool. Yeah. So I kind of went through, I took my journalism school again. I went to journalism school. I went to journalism school through digital and social media Yeah. to the point that by 2011, I, I said to myself in between jobs and everything, I said, I'm not seeing myself. And instead of complaining, I said, you know, technology is here. I'm going to create my own thing, Latino rebels, and I'm going to start. I'm going to start sharing my world. And I realized that a lot of people in my generation who are bilingual and bicultural were also saying the same thing. They were more English dominant. They were growing up in both cultures. But like I said, you know, they weren't listening to their parents, you know, Spanish language songs. They were listening to freestyle and hip hop. They were listening <laughs> to our alternative music. And that's the world that I came from. So within a year or a year and a half, because we were doing this, I start getting calls from major news outlets to talk about Latino voters in the 2020 election. That led to an audition to Al Jazeera America to be on the stream, which was, you know, and next thing you know, I was in a newsroom in DC being a digital, digital editor for Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera, yeah. which was super cool because it was a newsroom that reflected the world. Right. Right. And, and, and then that imploded. And then next thing you know, Mariana Jose's company was looking for some digital help. And I joined in 2000, late 2014. And it, it was all about representation. Right. Right. Everything that, and next thing you know, nine years later, I'm president of the company. Right. And, and I say that because I haven't changed in right. my mission. Right. But what's happened is that the country's caught up to it. Mm -hmm. You know, that the country has changed so much. So there's nothing that I did when I was 27 that I'm doing now that's different. It's just that I think people, like we banked on the fact that this country was changing. It was going to become more multiracial, more multi-ethnic, more multilingual. Mm 
it's being ignored. And the thing is, white corporate media mm-hmm. still thinks it's like the bad, you know, they this is about power. This is a struggle for power. Yep. And people that have the power are not going to give it up. So you there's two ways to do this. Mm-hmm. You either say, like, okay, I'm gonna go acquiesce to the power, or you try to grab some of the power. And, right. And and grabbing some of the power, that's what I'm doing. And and I'm not gonna grab it all. Right. But it gets better and better. I, it's like a baton. Like you talk about journalism. Yeah. Sorry, I, I'll make this one last point. Yeah, please, please. Um, I come from that, and Maria says this too, and I say it. It's like I come from the American tradition of quote unquote ethnic journalism or you know black journalism. Mm-hmm. So the best the best example that I always try to say to people is like who defines objectivity. So if you think about it. If you look at Ida B. Wells, when during uh, the height of the violence and black lynchings that happened in the Reconstruction era, you know, in World War One, you know, around that time, and you saw newsrooms, newspapers in the South, m- white men yeah. covering that, and there was no humanity, right? Ida B. Wells brought, you know, investigation, brought chronic, like brought live looked at it as a black journalist woman mm-hmm. right that point of view mm-hmm. was so like rare back then but it was telling a story that really spoke and is that tradition like frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. um you know hobita I'm, I'm sorry i'm like spacing out on the names um but people like in texas and california that were covering anti-Mexican sentiments coming from Puerto Rico, where I'm from, you know, colonialism, all these things that don't get the attention because there's a mainstream American narrative that we've been taught. Like this is the, this is, this is the ideal journalists such as myself. And now that I've become sort of a commentator and opinion writer, I mean, the fact that I write for MSNBC is just like mind blowing that you have to, you're representing another truth about the United States yeah. that actually makes you more American and actually makes you more, more, more of a person who loves this country. Because right. all I get is like, I'm a communist. I hate this country. Go back to where I come from. You're Puerto Rican. Like you're, and I'm like, this country has given me a lot. And I still have this ideal. Like I still believe in these words. Right. And this democracy, I, I believe it. Right. And that's where I think journalism, that's where journalists and storytellers have to be, because this is about creating a better democratic society. And so I know it's very lofty, but that that's what drives me every day. And that's what I do at Futuro. And I'm so glad that, you know, I'm so lucky that I get to, you know, be one of the leaders of a team of amazing journalists that try to look at this country through a different lens. Thank you. Wow. That is I'm saying thanks for letting me go because no, like, no, that no. Was, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean it's your show, but I was like, I, let me just give you some of this is what's going through my head. No, I, I I appreciate that because I I think you know one of the things you you touched on when we first chatted that you saw some similarities, and I was like, yeah, I you know definitely kind of vibe on it and seeing you know being being a person like I got a few different cool things that have happened where. You know, just kind of thinking outside of the box and going back to one of the things you touched on, I'll tie it to a hockey thing, you know, going where the puck is going, you know, know where the puck is going, not where it was already at. And 
I think when I'm trying to do any of this stuff of, are we really covering this? How are we covering this? How are we treating this? You know, yeah. I'm thinking about it from, from this perspective. Is it, is it accurate? And yeah, when there are folks that are kind of in a position that don't see the value in it, or I don't see a story here, which I've been told several times about this podcast, you don't have the vision. That's, that's what I think is it's your, it's you. Yeah. That's what I say. And it's also you. And, and, and here's the thing I always say, yeah. there's so many people who are going to drag you down and yeah. not going to believe it. Right. And it's too easy to let, to let those critics take over your vision. Mm-hmm. I think, and it might be a little, it's probably experience and wisdom and age. You do reach a certain point in life where life gets shorter, right? You know, I'm, I'm turning the corner, like the final lap, you know, I still, I feel like I still have like several miles in my life, but you start being more selective yeah. on who, who do you want in your circle? Right. I went through a very tough time online in 2000, you know, I don't, that, you, everyone, people come after you no matter what. Right. And, and we're all human. It does impact you. It does affect you. But there's a certain point where, I stopped caring about that. And the yep. moment I stopped caring, my my skin got tougher and I just focused on what, what can I do? Like I can only control the things that I can control. And it's pretty much just you, right? Yeah. Any relationship, even as a parent, in the end, you can only you, you can only do the best you can, but not everything's gonna go according to plan and you gotta roll with it. I try to but as long as yeah, as long as you're true to yourself and 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 don't follow the gimmicks, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. It's too easy. Like I, I will say one thing. Like you mentioned about all these podcasts and all the things that we do that are really good. And um, like I just saw an ad for Ernie Johnson and Charles Barkley, the Steam Room. I'm like, I do I need? I don't need an Ernie Johnson Charles Barkley podcast. Because I watch the inside the I I get that on inside the NBA. Like I'm all I don't set need to, <laughs> Yeah, I don't need this. And then I sit here and I'm like, there's so many great conversations happening in our communities that have value that don't get amplified and elevated mm-hmm. because like we got to go to talk about the steam room. I'm like Charles Barkley has enough. Like you don't need everything, Charles. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> step aside. Like get some some away from craft services, you know, or, or creative <laughs> services, if you will. And exactly, it, it's it's funny. Like this this shows you sort of the reach. Like I I remember I typed things. I didn't. I've I've been missing. Um, I'm a big baseball fan, and I've been missing like all the World Baseball Classic stuff. And oh, then, uh, yeah, that I, it was your you. story. It was your story that I saw, and I was like, oh man, that happened to my man's. Oh no, not him. <laughs> That yeah, I know, but yeah, that but that's I wrote this piece yeah. um or during and you know when Puerto Rico against the Dominican Republic they won. It was they got to the semifinals, but Edwin Diaz hurt himself yeah. in the celebration. You know, I wrote about it for MSNBC. I went out, you know, Keith Oberman just such insulting tweets about you know, you shouldn't represent a country, you know, where your ancestors get laid. I was like, dude, like today's white man liberal take is, you know, that sometimes this is the problem with white male liberals who think they're the smartest people in the room. Mm. 
they present themselves as allies, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But in the end, they want to tell you that they're the smartest person in the room, and like they'll never, they'll never show compassion. They'll never show that they messed up. It's actually more dangerous than right-wing conservatives who are racist. I agree. Because at least you know. Like I've mm -hmm. talked to several friends of mine who have actually moved back south, like who grew up in the south, who went to the northeast or even Chicago, and they went back and, you know, really great friends. I was talking to someone in a conversation, and he said, I'm going back to the south. At least I know, like, I can see it. It's yeah. more overt, right? Even like a play, you know what I mean? It's like, as opposed to like white white liberal men just sometimes. Because it's, it it's, it's almost this vibe. They talk a good game until they're a threat. It's almost right? this vibe where, and what I've seen from different pockets here in Baltimore, where it's like, oh, yeah, we're doing business here. We're doing this. It's almost like we're saving you you all. Or let, yeah. me, let me make it even a little bit more crappier, which I think is what they're they're thinking. We're saving you savages that's the vibe and i see it and it's just like i just don't do business with it like i i try you, to you have to be conscious you have to consciously yeah. just reject it and just be I, yeah. intentional and don't yeah. even try to change just know where people stand mm -hmm. and they're gonna make you feel uncomfortable like they're gonna use everything to make you feel like to drag you down to make you feel uncomfortable to question your abilities and the only thing that gets you through it is yourself your mm -hmm. determination your circle yeah. Right. I, I'm a big believer in you need you need a squad yeah. because this is a, it. this type of work is yeah. exhausting. It, everyone. There's so many people that do it. Yeah. And we're put on a higher standard like we have. You have to be better. Right. You know, I was you talk about this. It's, you know, when I wrote that piece for MSNBC, a lot of my Puerto Rican readers and friends and family was like, that's exactly how I feel. So I felt good about it. Yeah. But, you know, I made one factual mistake. I forgot to, that I felt really bad as a journalist and I got it corrected mm -hmm. really quickly and God bless my editor. But I just sit here and I'm like, that's, that's what they're going to, that's what they're going to, excuse me, that's what they're going to ding me on. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right. And so I just own it. Right. And I don't get, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. But you missed out on a lot of really great baseball. I'm just saying that that was awesome. I know. I know Edwin Diaz. I love him. Sugar. He's the best reliever ever, and he's Puerto Rican, and I'm really proud. Um, I am not a Mets fan. I used to be. I used to be a Yankees fan. For your listeners, just Google. I know. Just Google the Bronx Judas, and you will realize how I became a Red Sox fan, and it's because all of a sudden, like. Nomar and Pedro Martinez and David Ortiz start showing up, and it just was infectious. I hear you. So I am the biggest friggin' Red Sox fan going, okay. and I know it's Baltimore, and we suck this year. Like I, I, I think the <laughs> Orioles will be better, um, but there is something about sports that I've gravitated to again because I have more time. Yeah. Um, I still play soccer. That my wife will make, I'm, and she's going to make fun of me when I say this. She makes it sound like, you know, she thinks I'm like Christian, you know, the way I talk about it, like I'm Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> but but I've been playing with the same guys for like 15, 16 years. Right. And I always say, as a man, because mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of opportunities as men to just be vulnerable right. or just, just take a break and just be with 
friends. Yeah. And my wife's like, but what do you talk about? It's like, we talk about the game or I mean, it's like, but that's what it is. Right. I, I, that keeps me going yeah. with all the things that you go through. It's like I, my soccer league is, is what I love. So I'm rambling. So you, you no, no, if no, you no. got other questions, like I'm good. So, 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 so let me hit you with, um, I'm going to hit you yeah. with, uh, two more real questions and I have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay, go. So what is the, what is the story for you? The, the one that you feel like most proud of that you've worked on and you're like, yeah, that's, that's the one that I want out there. As, yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so many, but I'm going to go with when hurricane Maria happened in Puerto Rico, mm. Puerto Rican journalists who were living in the United States, like myself, instantly knew that it was going to be devastating. It was going to be on the same level as a Katrina, right? If, you know, when you think about the American lexicon, the American psyche of what Katrina meant to what it exposed, right? About America, right? You know, both the good and the bad, right? Same thing happened in Puerto Rico. And what was clear was that the political leaders who were in charge were kind of underselling the devastation, the death count. They kind of acquiesced to President Trump and to the famous thing where the former governor of Puerto Rico was talking about the death counts only 16 and all this. And it was such bullshit right. in the end, right? That I stayed on that story and all other journalists did it too, but I was really proud of that story because it meant a lot that the truth had to come out and that the death count in the end was in the thousands. And you would, one of the things that I learned as a journalist, I stuck to the truth and there was a, there was a level of respect from the people that I was, I wouldn't say exposing, but I was challenging as yeah. a journalist, that there was still this level of you're doing your job and you're doing it well but what you're presenting is actually not good for me, my image. Right. And I was really proud of that because I think it was a turning point. The effort that came from Puerto Rican journalists. And again, I was not the only one. There's so many Puerto Rican journalists in the diaspora and also in, the, in Puerto Rico that were saying this is important. Right. And I actually think that a lot of that work is the reason why as a Puerto Rican now in 2023, Puerto Rico doesn't feel so distant to the American. It, it, there's still like, people can talk about it. I actually think people can talk like they understand there was a hurricane and you know, it doesn't hurt that bad bunnies like really big, right? That at least people are yeah. understanding, like you can talk about what is it to be a colony? We're not really part of the United States. Like if you look at the Supreme court rulings and, and, and from the insular cases, back at the turn of the century are just as inherently racist mm -hmm. as any of the, any of the, you know, laws that kept, you know, slaves in check and slave people yeah. that made, you know, black people three fifths of a person. You look at sort of the American imperialist mind at the turn of the century. And I'm talking about the turn of the 20th century and how they viewed Filipinos and Puerto Ricans and Cubans as being inferior that they needed to be saved by the white Anglo-Saxon superior people. Mm -hmm. That is in the code. Like that is, you look at, look up the insular cases. This, I'm not, this is, I've been writing about this forever. So like the sense of American 
xenophobia, American racism, American, you know, bigotry that's that that has kind of shaped the relationship with Puerto Rico. Um, it's too easy to say, oh, they're American citizens just like us. Because when you look at our 125 year history, yeah. uh, where we were invaded, there's still a lot of issues. And I, I'm very proud as a Puerto Rican journalist that I've been able to elevate that. And, and now I get the opportunities. Like, I, you know, the fact that I was able to pitch my MSNBC editor about Team Puerto Rico and the World Baseball Classic, and I get to write a piece about that, an opinion piece, that wouldn't have happened seven years ago, right, 10 right. years ago. You know, so I'm really proud of that. Thank you. That's that's great. Uh, we we have a lot more to talk about after this because now my, my the hamster wheel is going. But I want to go into sort of this this last this last question, and I want to bring it sure. back to Toro. Um, congratulations, tenth anniversary! Is that oh, uh, yeah, Futuro tenth, but now it's going to thirteen, and oh. and Latino Rebels is going to twelve. Wow, wow! So we we got to change our we're we're changing our website. Like, like as president, like one of the things like, oh, yeah, we got to fix that. But that, you know, Futuro Media, for people that don't know what it is, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning organization headed up, you know, founded in 2010 by Mariana Hosa. We have Latino USA, which is 30 years, the longest running like U.S. Latino English language show on public radio in the thick, which I do with Mariana Hosa. The political podcast Latino Rebels, which is what I founded, is not part of Futuro Media, which I do Latino Rebels Radio, which I just did. I started doing on Blog Talk Radio in 2014, and I got listed in Oprah's magazine as like, you know, a curious journalist, one of the top Latinx podcasts of 2020. You know, I was like, okay, let's oh, go. Yeah. Thanks, Oprah. <laughs> um, so, and then we have Futuro Studios. If if you really really love audio audio. Premium story, premium audio storytelling, anything for Selena, La Brega, Loud, the History of Reggaeton, uh, The Sum of Us with Heather McGee, and our Pulitzer Prize winning podcast, Suave. And we have, we create all this, it's such a fabulous team. And then Maria has an, an incredible investigative unit. She feels so strongly that investigative reporting is too elite mm. and it, it needs to, it needs to be deconstructed. And so She's doing amazing work with that team. I'm a lucky person that I get to just say, you know, I'm part of a Pulitzer Prize winning organization and get to talk about it all the time. And we are based on 125. We're located on 125 and St. Nicholas in the heart of Harlem, right next to the A&D train. We're never going to leave Harlem. Uh, we're, it, we're not moving to Midtown. We're not moving to Brooklyn or anywhere. Harlem is home for Maria. It's home for Futuro Media. Even though we have fabulous journalists all over the country, in other parts in Puerto Rico and in Mexico, we live remote life, but it's a fantastic group of people that just represent the diversity of the Latinx community, the diversity of what it is to be Latino and Latina in this country, the diversity of what it is to be, you know, part of a a, a, a more multiracial, multi-ethnic America. And and it continues the tradition of you know quote unquote ethnic journalism, black journalism, Latino journalism in this country. We're just so proud of it, and it's very easy for me to brag about Futuro Media. I'm a lucky dude. 
Well, that's that's where we'll we'll wrap at and move into these uh, rapid fire questions. Yes, let's go rapid fire. Here we go. And thank you and thank you so much because that was. Oh uh, no, I'm right. You were great, Rob. I, I I your vibe is you know I don't do this. I don't say yes to everyone. <laughs> well, thank you. So you know, so I, you got me. You're great. You do. <laughs> I love it. You you got a great vibe. Well, thank you. Um, so here I got four of them for you. I got four rapid fire. All right, go. First one. Uh, what's your favorite color? Oh. Ooh, I'm going to say, oh, that's a good one. It depends on the mood, but I'm going to say like a really cool, like deep navy blue. Oh, yeah. Uh, favorite movie genre. It may not necessarily be your favorite movie, but it's like, I love the horror genre, right? Yeah. I, you know what? You know what I'm down with? Uh-huh. What gets me going? Like, I, I perk up with really cool historical movies okay like i'm down with historical fiction movies whatever that is <laughs> i'm here for it i'm here for it uh do you have a hidden talent yeah don't we all i don't um <laughs> oh yeah you're like i'm out uh, i used to do improv comedy in you, boston you definitely give me an improv vibe so yeah yeah i i I still have this dream that I want to be a stand-up comic. I'm still I'm not giving up on that, but I used to do improv comedy in the '90s, and I don't want to say anything. I was really damn good at it because I was the dude that was able to do improv in both languages. And I noticed I would pick out the audience members, be like, "Oh, I, I think there's a couple of Latinos in the audience, so I'm going to do some like." And they were like, "Oh, I know what's up now." They were like, "Oh my god, that was so funny!" So, yeah, that was great. That was yeah. That's my hidden talent. This is the last one I got for you. Um, yeah. So let's say we, we we all are super busy. We all, you know, yeah. the days run so long. And sometimes you're like, I need yeah. to eat something. I need to eat something that's good. I need to eat something yeah. that laps, but I need to eat something that's quick. What is that delicious, but quick? It doesn't have to be healthy. What is that like lazy evening? I need something that slaps meal for you. Um, give me a great bowl of ramen any day. I mean, just uh, spicy there's a local place around the like in massachusetts like where i'm in massachusetts um it's just like i'm good with ramen especially in the winter but then if you told me in the summer i'm a i love i love sashimi and sushi i love seafood and just give me all that and i'm good so yeah we can i'm good we can yeah 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 uh so that's pretty much it for the podcast of so my question you made it through rapid fire um oh, i survived you survived you off the hot seat, as it were. And um, <laughs> I, I want to, again, thank you for being on this podcast. And and two, I want to invite and encourage you to share anything that you want in the final moment, social media, website, all of that good stuff, sort of the shameless plug portion. Shameless plug. Uh, all you have to do is Julito77, J-U-L-I-T-O-7-7. There's a history of that name. It was a nickname that my stepmom's brother from Puerto Rico gave me in the late 70s and it stuck and i created that handle on twitter in 2005 and i never changed it because i've been on twitter forever and so you can find me on instagram also latino rebels on all the social handles julio ricardo varela on, on facebook so yeah that's where i'm at and there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Julio Ricardo Varela from Futuro Media for coming onto the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, culture, and journalism in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. Mm-hmm.